Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that samples as much as it can of the experiences of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including 20 car makers to make automatic emergency braking standard on new vehicles. We chat to our mate Fred Brain about attending a local car show. We road test the Range Rover Evoque, an SUV that is actually quite stylish. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including the Toyota Setsuna. It's a wooden electric car. Have a question or comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to the whole program again by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au, as well as longer interviews with the road test, quirky news, and other features. Or you can podcast the program or the quirky news just go to itunes or your favorite podcast service now to start the program let's have the news 20 car manufacturers in the u.s have committed to making automatic emergency braking standard on all cars and light trucks by 2022 automatic emergency braking systems help prevent crashes or reduce their severity by applying the brakes for the driver. The systems use on-vehicle sensors such as radar, cameras or lasers to detect an imminent crash, warn the driver and apply the brakes if the driver does not take sufficient action quickly enough. The voluntary agreement will ensure this technology will be in all cars three years ahead of what could have been achieved through a formal regulatory process. During those three years, according to official estimates, the early commitment will prevent 28,000 crashes and 12,000 injuries. Toyota has already said that they could do even better than this timetable. The RACQ, the Motoring Club of Queensland, has highlighted obscure road rules that have been catching out some drivers. Five of the more obscure laws Queenslanders have been fined for are using fog lights during clear weather, failing to give way or moving into the path of emergency vehicles, a learner driver under the direction of a person not seated beside the driver, driving with TV display screens in view of the driver, and cyclists using a mobile phone while riding. Traffic engineers have been concerned that we can become too familiar with the ordinary pedestrian crossing, particularly if we drive through them regularly without seeing any pedestrians. Zhao Wang, a student at Birmingham University, has recently won a British award for an innovative approach to pedestrian crossings. He argued that the traditional pedestrian crossing is functional but has become predictable and over-familiar. By employing emotional graphics, crossing a road could become more interactive, fun, and importantly, noticeable. He has proposed a crossing where sensors mounted in drain covers will detect the number of cars and people who want to cross the road, and when it is deemed best, the graphic patterns will be thrown onto the road automatically. And on a similar vein, traffic lights may be a thing of the past, according to a paper in the journal PLOS1. In peak conditions, vehicles queue up at traffic lights, then each direction is given a phase in which to cross. The new mathematical analysis suggests that with car-to-car and car-to-infrastructure, each vehicle could be given a slot in which to pass through the intersection. This would require the vehicle to adjust its speed to arrive at just the right time at the intersection. 
results theoretically show that transitioning from a traffic light system to slot-based intersection has the potential of doubling capacity and significantly reducing delays. The policy exchange think tank in the UK has recommended that the British government impose an £800 or $1,500 tax on sales of new diesel cars, with the proceeds used for a scrappage scheme for older diesel vehicles. Air pollution is very high in many UK cities and has been estimated to cause tens of thousands of premature deaths a year. Regulations have failed to control nitrogen dioxide levels, which mostly come from diesel vehicles and was highlighted by the VW admissions cheating scandal. The tax is estimated to generate £500 million or about $950 million a year. This would give a grant of about $3,800 to take older vehicles off the road and buy a lower emission vehicle. Research often shows that a lot of traffic in cities is circulating, possibly looking for a parking spot or perhaps taxis looking for a fare. A National Bureau of Economic Research reports indicates that ride-sharing services such as Uber and Lyft spend much more of their time and travel carrying passengers than taxis. They suggest that this may be because of Uber's more efficient driver-passenger matching technology, inefficient taxi regulations, and Uber's flexible labour supply model and surge pricing more closely match supply with demand throughout the day. The Chinese are making a big push into electric cars, but this has proved to be a great benefit to some American companies, particularly small companies which might not otherwise have been able to survive without their help. According to Automotive News Green Car Report, one of these is Atlanta-based WeGo. Three years ago, when WeGo needed money to expand, it received funding from a Chinese investment firm on the condition that it focuses more on China. Now most of WeGo's sales are, in fact, in China. The Chinese government offers generous incentives for new electric cars and is pushing companies to develop and sell more of them. And that has been the news. Overdrivers talked a bit of recently about how modern motor shows tend to be a bit static and a bit impersonal. The intention is to move, in some cases, more to technical shows or shows where people are more involved. Perhaps in Sydney we will see where you can test drive a car around a racetrack, not fast, but at least get a chance to drive it. But perhaps there's a third alternative, the local motor show. I had the chance to emcee a little motor show in uh, the northwestern part of Sydney recently where they put together an eclectic group of vehicles. Not all of the modern or all of the old, not all of the serious, but some including the unusual. Uh, my friend Fred Brain, who's been on the program before, he brought along his lovely Monaro from yesteryear. And uh, he was there and had a chance to chat to some of the people. And so I thought I would reflect on this now. Fred joins me on the line. Fred, uh, thanks for your time. Your Monaro, what sort of fuel consumption would you get out of your Monaro? And firstly, what year was it? 
69 model. Uh, it's got the 350 Chev, so it chews through a bit of fuel. In terms of the actual <laughs> consumption, I have no idea. Not not something I've ever really wanted to check, I have to say. The reason I asked, there were a couple of uh, big old American cars there, a Ferrari as well and the Bentley. You, know, you can imagine their fuel consumption was good. But, of course, we also brought along the just-released Toyota Prius. Now, you used to have a lot to do with Toyota, but I think you'll find that it's certainly a car that's improved in its looks of late. Uh, yeah, look, it certainly looks better than the first edition Prius, uh, which is really mm. quite a strange-looking car. The, the current one, it's been modernised more and actually has sort of a sharp-edged styling look to it rather than kind of a weird, weird modernistic look to it. Uh, in my opinion anyway. We had it out there and of course the fuel consumption, I did a calculation, it gets over 80 miles per gallon in the old measure, 3.5, and that's in the worst case scenario, in the new measure. It's a little different and I think that was a really surprising fact to the people who were there. When you think 80 miles per gallon, extraordinarily good um, mileage um, out of a motor vehicle which I mean, you, you don't hear of that of anything else, apart from maybe a motorbike. A small motorbike might get similar, but even even then. That's about 3.4, 3.5 litres per 100. When you and I grew up, to get 30 miles per gallon was, uh, or 10, about 10 litres per 100, uh, was really fantastic. Yeah, so it was nice to have a new car there. The, the other new car we had there was the Audi TT, now, I think the young kids like that a lot as well. Did you see much of it? Yeah, and uh, I was fortunate to have a brief drive of it and we were ferrying it to the uh, to the place. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that, that was quite an interesting car. Most, I have to say, though, most frustrating to drive it on the road because you just give it a bit of a boot and next thing you're up to the speed limit. It's a caged tiger in many ways, isn't it? Oh, that, uh, yes. On, on the open road. A beautiful-looking little two-door coupe. One of the other cars we had at the local motor show was a DeLorean. The guy that owned it was 35 years old, which is about the time the movie was out. The interesting thing was that he had a Holden V8 in the middle of this car that he'd uh, replaced it, which is a little different from the original, which uh, tends to suggest it's not authentic in one sense, but it had all the pseudo-technology bells and whistles on it. Were you impressed by all that? Um, well, the, the pseudo-bells and whistles, all the sort of add-ons that uh, were, were put on for the... Well, mate, maybe even the Holden V8. You, of a Monaro <laughs> fan, would like that. In terms of making it more reliable, if, it, if indeed it was the car that did run, um, it's probably a good way to go, putting a Holden V8 <laughs> in it rather than... The original certainly wasn't what you would call the most reliable of vehicles. There was a car there that particularly took your fancy. It was green. How did he get it to be green? <laughs> yeah, the tail of some some cars and wacky things people do to them. <laughs> the one covered in imitation grass. <laughs> That's the one you're referring to. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> As I explained, he uh, he got it very cheaply, but the uh, mechanically it seemed okay, but the bodywork was a bit how's your father? So, uh, and he he apparently just looked at starting a uh, imitation grass business, which didn't eventuate. So he had lots of leftover grass, so he decided to cover the car with it. 
Fred, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Yep, no problem. No, pleasure to do it. Okay, and that's our good colleague, uh, Fred Brain, uh, uh, who races in Old Monaro, among other things, and has contributed to the program regularly. We were talking about a local motor show that we were part of and just how much fun and personableness there was with that. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. Most SUVs are not known for their looks. Some little ones are not too bad. I quite like the new Suzuki Vitara. But when the Range Rover Evoque came onto the market in 2011, after they'd shown a concept car in 2008, I was more than pleasantly surprised. It's classed in the luxury medium-sized SUV. Now, the base model, to get it on the road, including rego and dealer charges, might cost you a bit under $59,000. Depending on which state you're in, the top-of-the-range autobiography is over 100000 I've got to say, I felt pretty good driving one, and I've seen quite a few on the road. Now, motoring expert Ian Crawford has also had a spin, and he joins me on the line to talk about it. Ian, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure, David. Now, the looks. The nose is not ugly, I think it's good, but it's the back that really has, I think, a bit of style about it, does it? Oh, it certainly has style. It's a, it's almost it's a it's an SUV with a fastback in a way. Um, most if you think of most SUVs, they're sort of fairly boxy things, that, you know, with horizontal lines and vertical lines, albeit with a few curves here and there. But to have a real sort of sloping roof line is uh, it's quite a courageous styling statement, I think. Yeah, the waist comes up a bit and the roof slopes down a bit. It makes it almost like a cut down roof at the back, uh, but it really makes it stand out. Yes, it certainly does, um, and and it's it's been a success way beyond I think Land Rover's wildest expectations. I mean, it's uh, it's done uh, nearly five hundred thousand units since the launch that you mentioned in two thousand and eleven, um, and it's now the fastest selling Land Rover of all time, which is quite a record when you think that Land Rover has been around since what nineteen forty eight or thereabouts. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? And it it's in the smaller size. It's, as I say, medium-sized SUV, whereas your, your typical discoveries and that uh, tend to be at least that size and in building up to it. Now, the new one, of course, has uh, particularly the diesel new engines. Are they good? Yeah, the new, the new engine um, is uh, is quite an impressive unit. Um, the, uh, the Land Rover people called it the Ingenium power plant. Um, it's a, it's a two-litre diesel unit in, in the test car that I had, uh, 132 kilowatts at 4,000 revs and 430 newton metres of peak torque, which comes in at only 1,750 rpm. Um, it's a variable valve timing engine, uh, and Land Rover claims it's uh, between 20 and 30 kilograms lighter than its predecessor, as well as delivering lower levels of, of vibration and noise. Um, it's also a pretty economical engine. Uh, 5.1 litres per 100 is seriously impressive. 
Well, yeah, that that is good because, as I say, medium size. That's a pretty sizable car sitting up high yep. with capabilities. You can get it in uh, two wheel drive and four wheel drive, I believe. Uh, yeah, I've only driven the four wheel drive one, um, hmm. and uh, but that that engine, by the way, is uh, mated with a nine speed automatic. It's it's a lot of speed. <laughs> yeah, I I wonder how often you'd ever get near nine. It's probably a cog or two too many for Australia with with, with our hundred and ten kilometer speed limits. Um, mm. uh, the top the top couple of, of ratios are, are all but useless really. But um, you know it'd be a wonderful thing if you're on a German autobahn and with, where you could use all nine. General Motors is talking about bringing out a ten speed. This one I took it around in its most natural environment. Uh, it was the coffee shops of Balmain in Sydney, uh, where it's sort of inner city. I think uh, is where it's uh, probably going to be used the most. Yet, like all good Range Rovers, how good is it off road? Yeah, I I didn't get wildly um, ambitious off road, but but I did get a chance to use it in a bit of mud and some gravel roads. Um, you can, at the touch of a button, you can press, um, you can select grass, gravel, snow, mud, ruts or sand settings um, and they come into play instantly. Um, it's a very capable car uh, on gravel. I, I really enjoyed sort of uh, tossing it around with some enthusiasm on gravel roads and uh, mm. it certainly didn't have any trouble with the, the mud and the large puddles that I took it through. And that was Ian Crawford, a respected motoring journalist, and we were talking about the Range Rover Evoque. And if you would like to hear a longer interview with Ian, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And now it's that time of the week where we talk some unusual stories, some quirky stories in the wonderful world of motoring and transport. And on the line I have Errol Smith. G'day Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Uh, now, we start with the story of the Setsuna. This is a Toyota car of sorts, that they, a concept car, that they actually presented at the Milan Design Week. So it's not one of your traditional auto shows. Uh, and perhaps this is not a traditional car. It's made of wood. And it's, uh, it's got sort of a body with the wheels sticking out the side, almost like a racing car in a way. Yet it's uh, really something that almost goes back to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in its looks. Well, no, not so much. But the more the boat. Is it something Toad of Toad Hall might have wanted? Uh, gentlemen, you've seen it. Are you impressed? Uh, my first impression was that it looks like a boat that they tacked wheels onto. It's yeah. even got this sort of... Um, uh, sort of old-fashioned sort of windows that sort of fold forward, you know, oh, fold yes. down forwards. Um, but um, it, it's an interesting idea. That I, I thought the 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 other thing they were trying to do is that they'll say it will last a hundred years. I wish these guys had to come and put my deck down. <laughs> if, if it's going to last a hundred years, I got to tell you, I don't have much luck with decks. David, you yeah. get Japanese cedar and Japanese birch. And uh, not a single nail or screw, then that's that's your deck would be still fine. Now, uh, look, I love this thing. I think I 
it's ridiculous, and the and a lot of the blurb in the um, press release is is equally ridiculous. But it's such a beautiful looking machine, and it just really shows you that wood is such a a luxurious material in a in you know used in a high end outcome like this. Mm. They say, as you hinted at, Brian, there that they they put this together without nails or screws. It's along a a, a Japanese. Akun Akun and system, which uh, doesn't need this. You know what it worries me about? It reminds me of those wooden puzzle cubes. You know those blocks <laughs> of wood that you can't. Yeah, you know, if you break them apart, it suddenly becomes very hard to put them back together again. Now I think they've done this intentionally, and that means then that if you have this car, you have to take it back to the dealer to get it repaired. Yeah, or right? a, or a good you, cabinet maker. Well, you see. Yes. It, it, <laughs> It's got such a, a, it's put together so cleverly that only a dealer would know he'd have the right manual in order to be ah, able yes, to give to, the to, service. To pull it apart and put it back together. You couldn't just take it down to the crystal car wash, you know, you'd say, look, in, look I'll have the wash and a French polish, please. <laughs> <laughs> but look, one of the things I noticed in this uh, press release is this idea that that uh, you know, it, it, the car will mature and the, the surfaces will get a patina and it will evolve together with you. And, and it says, including when a car is handed down to the next generation. Now, when does that ever happen? I mean, mm. cars these days are not handed down. It's, it's you know, um, begrudgingly accepted, perhaps, the, the old second-hand car. But, but it's not a sort of Patek Philippe watch, is it, where... Where you know you're just you don't own it, but you're holding it in trust for your children. You know, I, I'm just not sure. As long as you keep away from white ants, I guess if you've if you've got termites in the area, you've got to get uh, the flick man in to do a service as well. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just do too well uh, in Australia actually for that reason. But um, I was wondering, it's it, they don't say that it's amphibious, but it certainly looks like it is. <laughs> it would float, wouldn't it? Well, there's a problem there. It will encourage people. To drive across flooded rivers. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Boating across. Boating across. Messing about in boats. Now, how would it perform in a crash? I imagine there'd be a dangerous splinters, very big splinters. And, in fact, even the, the idea of washing it or, or, you know, I've got to go out and sand down the car, um, you, you could get splinters doing that as well. But, but look, the intriguing concept, I kind of I, I love it. Brian, I think you can get a, a splinter sitting in it because <laughs> the seats are solid wood. <laughs> they say, and this is part of the press release buzzwords, I think, that it does take uh, the seats take on a unique character and depth over time. Does that mean it, you wear it into the shape of your bum? <laughs> That's a fantastic idea. But I think I think it's appropriate that this is shown at the you know Milan Design Show because a, a lot like fashion, the fashion industry, it's. It looks amazing, but it's completely impractical in the real world. They drive it onto the stage, and the person driving has to look bored and you know indifferent, like any sort of model. <laughs> like a model, yeah. Get out and as if to look, you know, why the hell am I here? And at the end, the designer comes out from behind the curtain and waves. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, directions. Can you tell me about that? Oh, this is such an interesting story, David. Uh, if you go to China and try to use your sort of GPS-attached uh, phone to use sort of Google Maps and things like that, you may get quite a surprise. You may find yourself uh, uh, not standing where you think you are, but standing in the middle of a river or in the middle of a road. 
because Chinese law makes independent map making a crime and that uh, they force Google in their um, mapping software to use an algorithm called Apply China Location Shift, which deliberately moves your actual location to prevent you from being able to know exactly where you are. So you and someone else may be standing next to each other looking at your phones. You might be shown as, as kilometres apart. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of ridiculous thing. Google actually uh, nicknames this algorithm Evil Transform um, <laughs> to, to reflect the kind of uh, bizarre, paranoid approach that China's taking here. And, uh, yeah, so some people who have been attempting to map or, or collect data in field trips have uh, been fined huge amounts of money for illegal map-making activities. Well, you see, the thing is they're, they're concerned. And now you can rest assured that if someone drops an atomic bomb, it might miss by 500 metres. <laughs> David, when I, I, years ago, I worked in the Middle East in Iran for a while. And uh, prior to the project, to going there for the project, the clients sent us maps so we could understand the study area. But they uh, carefully used a razor to cut out all of the the industrial areas from the map so we wouldn't know that just exactly where the steelwork was and, and where the concrete batching plant was. So, uh, yeah, they sent us these maps with holes in them, I guess, so that we couldn't, you know, help the Americans to, to <laughs> target their bombs onto uh, this particular cutout triangle on the map. Do they affect the f photographic things that when you take a photo with your phone it records the GPS location. Does that get jammed? But it yes. Could, yeah, yeah every, anything, anything position-related. So you can take a, a GPS-tagged photo and it will say that you're at a completely different monument, perhaps on the other side of the river. <laughs> I, I think that a lot of countries have tried to do this before. There's often been, uh, even the US and, and similar countries have wanted parts of the uh, satellite imagery to be blurred because there were you know sensitive things yeah. there or at least have, out of date so in in the us the um bits of washington uh, have very old imagery so that it doesn't show all the, the the new security features and things like that so instead of having an atomic site it's got a picture of a drive-in yes exactly <laughs> all right gentlemen uh, some handy hints and some interesting reflections thank you once again for your time thank you david no worries no worries david and that's errol smith and brian smith talking the unusual stories to do with transport here on Overdrive. And you can hear a longer chat between Brian Smith, Errol Smith and myself, including more quirky stories, one about school parents being asked to stop wearing sleepwear when they deliver their children to school. Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or you can podcast the quirky news or the whole program at iTunes or your favourite podcast service. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Fred Brain, Ian Crawford and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>